0: ND Votes is a nonpartisan campaign of the Center for Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, and the Constitutional Studies minor at the University of Notre Dame that promotes voter education, registration, and mobilization. ND Votes fosters conscientious engagement in political and civic life among students. Welcome back to our new podcast, Pizza, Pod, and Politics, a virtual initiative in place of our signature event, Pizza Pop and Politics, during the time of COVID-19. Our goal is to continue educating students post-election about different political issues from a nonpartisan lens with hopes of fostering a more conscientious and informed student electorate. Today we will be focusing on education policy and how education has been affected by the coronavirus pandemic. Hi everybody, my name is Matt. I'm a junior here at Notre Dame, an economics and political science major and for Votes, I am our chair of campus engagement and I'm joined today by my co-host Adair.
1: Hey guys, I'm Adair Malinsky. I'm also a junior at Notre Dame, studying economics in Spanish, and I'm the chair of social media for ND Votes.
0: Joining us today is Professor Chloe Gibbs from Notre Dame's economics department. She joined the department in 2015 and previously held an assistant professorship at the University of Virginia. She's also a faculty affiliate of the Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities. Her research focuses on measuring the effects, both intended and unintended, of policies and programs targeted at disadvantaged children and families. Her recent research has included analyzing the impact of full-day kindergarten on cognitive and non-cognitive outcomes using experimental and quasi-experimental methods, investigating the intergenerational transmission of Head Start effects, and exploring whether fade-out of early childhood effects varies with preschool and early school experiences. As members of her Economics of Education class last semester, Adair and I are very excited to welcome her to the show. Welcome, Professor Gibbs.
2: Thanks for having me. Good to see you guys.
0: Absolutely. So, just to lead off, we just wanted to ask: uh, How effective has virtual schooling and hybrid instruction been? And generally, who has it hurt the most?
2: I think this is a great question. Unfortunately, I don't think we have a lot of great sort of real-time evidence about how effective instructional modes have been. Um, We, I mean, I, I, I'll say at the outset, one thing that we see in sort of the aggregate data is that women, particularly mothers of school age children and of young children have dropped out of the labor market at really pronounced rates. And while the labor market participation of fathers has rebounded somewhat, we don't see a similar pattern for mothers. So when we say, who has it hurt the most? I think families are really struggling to accommodate these different instructional modes that are really disruptive to kind of the the norm, which um, would be kids in, in person in schools. And in terms of how it's worked for students, I think we have, you know, an existing evidence base that suggests, you know, they're really mixed results to, to virtual learning. So there can be very effective um, online programs and very ineffective programs. I think one thing we know from that existing evidence is it doesn't work particularly well for young kids. And there's a variety of reasons, you know, we can think about why that would be. Um, we also think that being in-person in school for young kids Isn't really just about their academic development, but also about social emotional development and kind of learning how to be in a classroom with peers, um, that sort of thing. So, which really can't be replicated in a virtual setting. So, I will say we don't have, you know, sort of the the tangible evidence to speak to how it has worked in the context of of the pandemic, but, you know, we can sort of anticipate that it's going to have uneven effects depending on sort of how strong and and carefully implemented the virtual schooling was, and that it's likely to kind of hurt, obviously, young kids the most, I think, and also kids who have poor access to technology tools to stable internet, the kinds of things that facilitate making that actually kind of work smoothly. So, you know, we'll we'll, I think it still remains to be seen um, what those results will look like.
1: So, as you said, not having in-person instruction The effects are still kind of up in the air as to like what what that will look like. But if you could take a guess in the future, like how do you see economists quantifying this learning loss and approaching that once the data is available?
2: Yes. So this question, I think we actually have a little bit more evidence on. Um, The reason for that is because we don't, we haven't really been able to tie specific instructional modalities, like, you know, if kids were hybrid or if they were in online learning, what has that looked like then for their academic progress? But what we can see is look at sort of overall trends in assessment data. So we can compare, for example, kids in the fall of 2020 to kids in the fall of 2019, right? So to their same grade level in the previous year. It's not perfect because if you think about who's taking the tests in fall of 2020, it's going to be more likely to be the kids that are back in person schooling or the kids who are at home but have access to the resources to take the tests online. So so with that caveat in mind, that's going to be a selected sample, but that sort of early capture on the data suggests that there have been significant setbacks relative to where kids were in 2019. And uh, and I think, you know, it, with the way in which we think that sample is kind of different than all kids uh, suggests that it probably understates the full impact on, um, on where kids are. So like if we had all the kids who are still learning at home, and if we had all the kids who don't have access to the technology to necessarily take their exams online, then what we would see, my guess, would be even um, more substantial setbacks. And so... That's in terms of academic progress. We see these pretty pronounced dips relative to where kids were in the past. And, but I I also want to sort of emphasize that that doesn't capture sort of the full effects of disruptions to in-person learning, right? Because we're not just concerned about how kids are doing academically, That, you know, social, emotional um, development, mental health, you know, there's a lot of other things that we think have been affected for kids. Also important to just kind of note that schools, when in-person, school buildings kind of serve as a hub for lots of other services that kids and families interact with. So nutrition, meals, identification of child abuse and neglect. Uh, screening for you know everything from like vision and hearing impairments to um, disabilities or special needs uh, English language learning needs those kinds of things and so you know a lot of that is not happening when kids are not in person in school and so I think there's a lot of other ways to think sort of beyond this concept of, of learning loss that's gotten a lot of attention a lot of other ways that we should be concerned about sort of what kids are what students are missing out on and other ways in which they are, potentially not connected to the kinds of resources and supports that they used to be connected to.
0: Super interesting. Um, so obviously, not everybody was created equal before this pandemic, and there were existing achievement gaps. But this pandemic, how, how has it affected those achievement gaps across different groups of students?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, you know, the, the comparisons we have now are imperfect, but I would say they suggest that probably exactly what we would predict, which is that the gaps have looked more pronounced, particularly by socioeconomic status. And there are a couple reasons for this. So one is just that the return to in-person schooling has been concentrated in particular places. And so urban school districts have kind of been the last, I think that's a fair characterization, the last to go back in-person on average. And so what that means is the the kinds of kids, the kinds of families that are served by those urban school districts look pretty different than those served by suburban and rural districts. And and so you know all of the, we just talked about about sort of the struggles with, with online learning and the the losses associated with not being in person and all of that is going to be concentrated among kids of low socioeconomic status or, you know, from disadvantaged backgrounds. And so that has, that has exacerbated. And we speculate too, that it will continue to exacerbate these existing achievement gaps, which I think is really the, that to me is kind of the crux of the issue. So, you know, a lot of people are really like reticent to use the term learning loss because we've obviously been through, um, you know, and we're still in the midst of a massive public health crisis that has led to, you know, substantial job losses, you know, health shocks for families, unemployment, all these things are happening sort of simultaneously. And so families have been through a lot and um, and a lot of that's gonna be concentrated among the most disadvantaged families. And so, you know, like, should we really be thinking about test score performance as kind of a paramount issue right now? That's, that's the pushback on, on thinking about learning loss. But what I will say is that um, because these setbacks that we observe are gonna be concentrated among kids who, as you said, were already in under-resourced schools and, and already sort of experiencing these achievement gaps, then, you know, it's, it's something we should really be focusing our attention on. Like, you know, we, we can, we could think that, you know, sort of everybody has been set back by this, right? Everybody, all kids have, have experienced a major shock to what they were previously doing. Fair enough. But some kids have been more pronouncedly affected by the pandemic in all of its, ways that it has affected families lives. And one of those is through education and disruptions to their education. So I think we really should be focusing on sort of how to target resources to the kids who have been most affected.
1: I think that's a really great point. And it reminded me of the beginning of the pandemic when people were very concerned about school lunch programs, free school lunch programs ending. And yeah, I think it hasn't received quite as much attention, but maybe it maybe it should. We're going to switch, or switch gears a little bit to talking about online instruction yeah. and its benefits. So if there are any, do you think that this pandemic has maybe caused a shift towards more online instruction and in the context of younger students, but also older students and college students as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we think, I think sometimes we think, oh, online instruction was kind of like the the situation we were forced into by the pandemic and that sometimes can kind of we kind of characterize it with this negative lens then because of that and i do think that sort of getting up and running on online learning very quickly is is not an ideal situation right it means that you know school districts schools teachers both in K through 12 and in higher education, we're sort of left scrambling to figure out what's going to work best. Right. And that's not an ideal way to deliver any kind of instruction. So it was not going to be on par with how we're all used to teaching and learning. Right. And so I think that's, that's kind of the negative lens we've cast on it, but I think it also has been an opportunity to kind of see the value in using technology in different ways in broadening access to resources. So, you know, Tons of of kids are now connected to things like Khan Academy and some of these other online resources that can supplement what they're doing in school um, or open up new things for them to learn that they wouldn't normally be exposed to. So there has also been kind of this democratization of access to tools that I think could be really innovative and really cool for us to use. And in the higher education space as well, you see some professors offering their classes broadly or to students in the developing world to, you know, take a class at Harvard alongside the Harvard students. And so by being sort of forced to embrace these tools, I think it has actually also sort of opened up people's eyes to some of the ways in which you could use these tools for broader impact and make resources, instruction, those kinds of things more available. Here at Notre Dame, there was a a program started by Nicole McNeil and others here on campus to provide tutoring to the the kids of Notre Dame faculty and staff and all done virtually all scaled up very quickly and just a really impressive effort and i think you will see some of that will last beyond the pandemic some of these ideas about how to support students be they k through 12 or or higher ed students in more creative different ways you know it'll be great when it's alongside the in person interactions that we also think are so valuable to people's development and learning but i think it could really complement those experiences well. And I think we're, we are learning now, uh, you know, as, as time goes on about the best ways to deliver that kind of content online.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I think that's a super important uh, issue to be thinking about, but as we're going to switch gears a little bit here to get into the more uh, policy focused area. So we just had this big relief bill passed. So just to give everybody a little bit of background, Congress recently passed $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that has $170 billion for education in it. Close to $130 billion will go towards K-12 schools, while $40 billion will go to colleges and universities. So just with that background in mind, I believe generally close to 90% of school funding comes from either state or local revenue sources. So just is it surprising to see the federal government get so involved with this education aid?
2: I mean, I think I have to say I was surprised by the extent of it. I mean, this will be the largest, I believe, single federal outlay uh, to to K through 12 schools in history. And so, you know, it's a massive package from, from school's perspective, but it's also, I think, a massive crisis. And so from that, you know, in thinking about it that way, I think it, it's understandable that K through 12 schools... Relying on state and local revenue streams is not going to bring us out of, of this crisis in, in a successful way, right? States, are, states have to balance their budgets. They can't run deficits. And so they're in a very different situation than the federal government in these kinds of crises, right? Where they had to spend a bunch of money over the past year on things that they weren't anticipating having to spend money on. And that has to come from somewhere. You know, this this will give them, I think, the infusion of, of resources that they need to really focus the attention on the education problem. There's also in the relief bill, of course, state local funds as well, which could probably supplement and work with the, the K through 12 direct spending. So so it's a huge, a huge um, amount of aid flowing through to, to school districts. And as you pointed out, it's really sort of it's unusual since states and localities are usually the ones responsible for the tab on schools.
1: So given all of this, all the new funds at their disposal, what do you think K through 12 schools plan to use the money for? And are there certain strategies that could be the most cost effective to reopen schools more quickly?
2: Yeah. So I think there's, um, I think the plans for the money are, I would kind of characterize them as twofold. The first being getting schools open, as you said. And so more sort of on the hygiene, safety, health side of things. What are the things that schools need to do if they are not back in person or to continue being in person to get kids back into school buildings? So, and, you know, that's going to run the gamut from figuring out like testing and tracing strategies potentially that they haven't been able to implement yet, sanitation and also ventilation, um, those kinds of things very um, directly. And potentially also, you um, facilitating teacher vaccination, some of those things that um, with those building blocks in place might facilitate the return to in-person schooling. And then the other big chunk or the other sort of big umbrella of funds is essentially dealing with the the problem that schooling has been disrupted for the past year. And so that's kind of a more long-term, I think, vision. So once you have kids back, then what are the strategies or sort of while you're trying to get kids back in person or working towards that goal, what are some of the strategies you can employ to help remediate some of the learning losses, to address the achievement gaps we were talking about, to provide for kids' mental health and uh, nutrition and all the other things, while you are also working on the the public health challenges? So those are kind of the two broad buckets. It's going to be you know sort of the direct COVID-related policies and practices, and then it is going to be the the learning loss piece. And I believe that there's a 20% set aside, so school districts do have to spend at least 20% of the money on the learning loss issue and, and you know sort of targeting those funds to either extending the school year, summer learning, after school programs, tutoring, whatever it might be, but they do have to set aside some funding directed at that problem.
0: So I want to pose the same question, but with colleges and universities, because they obviously get funding as well. Is it still those same two broad buckets? Are there certain things that colleges and universities can do that maybe wouldn't work in the K-12 sphere? But yeah, what, what will this money be used for for colleges and universities? And are there any good strategies for it? Yeah,
2: so it's structured a little differently, obviously, for, for higher education, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, that about 50% of the funds are directed towards sort of emergency need-based financial aid. So that's, that's actually going directly to support students in pursuing their, their college education. I think this is really important. I think, you know, sort of related to the the problems, you know, sort of all of the many fold issues that the pandemic has exacerbated and laid bare, families have been hit very hard, students sort of on the margin of college going, you know, those who are kind of scraping together resources to be able to go that are relying on aid that are, you know, maybe were working also to support their pursuit of higher education, or maybe their parents were working and are now unemployed. All of these, these sort of Crises have happened um, as a result of the pandemic, and so I think being able to pay and afford for college education is hugely important. We've seen these pretty pronounced enrollment dips, particularly concentrated among the sort of most disadvantaged or or sort of under-resourced college students, And, and we know how important college-going is for future outcomes, and so I think The fact that half of this money is directed towards that very problem and and supporting students and staying in college and affording college, I think is great. The other sort of large chunk of that money is going to institutions that have endowments less than 100 million dollars. And that includes a lot of the historically Black colleges and universities. And so I, th- the, you can think of the other, this is sort of more of a supply side issue, was really supporting the institutions that were hit hardest and don't have the buffer that, that your Notre Dame and other um, institutions have and supporting them in, in kind of smoothing through this this period of of disruption. In terms of what they will then use it for, you know, again, it it is kind of those broad two buckets. It's like sort of first and foremost safety, hygiene, health to get students back on campus and provide instruction and and meet their instructional and research missions as best they can. Um, And then the other piece is, you know, improving instructional tools and those kinds of things that can also facilitate pursuing their mission in the context of hybrid learning. So so that's kind of how the higher ed money is broken out. You know, it's sort of a little more um, focused on, uh, it sort of has this dual prong m- mission, I would say, of supporting institutions that are struggling, supporting students that are struggling in finishing, you know, in staying in school.
1: So this bill appears to be more long-term than just the immediate COVID relief purpose. So schools do not have to spend the money they receive right away. Why is that? And what are the advantages and disadvantages of that?
2: Yeah, I think this is actually a a really smart piece of the legislation because um, I think the challenges that are, um, you know, that have emerged as a result of the pandemic are big challenges that are going to take not only resources, but time to address. So I, I think it's I think it's for one thing smart not to put schools on the clock to spend a bunch of money very quickly and maybe not in intentional and smart ways. Um, so I like that aspect of it. I think it gives them time to sort of use the funds wisely and in ways that you know, I think we still don't know all of the challenges that we're gonna see, right? So some school districts aren't back in person yet. Um, It's going to take a while for us to get back to a point where we're um, conducting standardized assessments pretty consistently and we have a good capture of sort of where students are. So I think it also allows for the fact that some of the challenges are still going to emerge over time and allows school districts to then respond to those challenges as they see them unfold. I think we don't know about the long-term ramifications, but I, I think we know from uh, you know a wealth of of existing education literature about how important all of the sort of developmental steps that students go through in their schooling trajectories are, and so we know that you know there's going to be long-term ramifications from what kids have experienced in uh, the past, you know, say year, year and a half, and so I think having some funds that can can be deployed over time to confront those challenges, uh, I think is really important. You know, it's, I I think about like kids who have missed sort of the fundamental kindergarten year or have had that year disrupted, um, that could have, you know, consequences for their schooling trajectories from here through high school, even beyond. And so I think being able to use these resources in ways to confront those challenges over time, I think is really, really important. Um, So I think that, you know, I think given the two strategies, the kind of confront the pandemic-related issues immediately, and then also, you know, sort of use the funds for these, these ongoing challenges, I think necessitated that kind of longer time frame.
0: Great. So now I think we're going to move to the third kind of conversation that we wanted to have today, which is about the Biden administration. And we wanted to make sure we had this because obviously this is a relatively new administration that uh, is from a different party. So we've got completely different sets of ideas uh, on the two parties on most issues, but education is definitely one of them. First, uh, I wanted to ask about Biden's first 100 days pledge. He, he pledged that he wanted to have the reopening of schools in his first 100 days. So this is more of a short-term priority, but are we making progress? And Is that something that can be realistically achieved in the first 100 days?
2: My sense is that we are making progress. I think it's really tricky. Um, perhaps I think, trickier than the sound bites would suggest to measure this, right? Because um, there isn't sort of an agreed-upon definition of what we mean by open schools. I mean, by some definitions, schools have been open this entire time, right? Because they shifted to um, different modes of instruction, but, you know, teachers were still working, students still learning, although, you know, not everyone was engaging at the same rates, um, unfortunately. But, but so, and then, you know, now we're in a situation where lots of schools are hybrid. And so they're in some form of in-person and they have some form of, of virtual and there's some combination either by grade levels or with a rotating days of the week or with, you know, opt-in so families can can make some choices about which. So, so it's hard to kind of pin down um, exactly sort of where we stand, uh, but we certainly have made progress. I mean, uh, over time, schools are are shifting to more in-person schooling. And uh, and now with vaccination ramping up at the rate that it is, we're going to just see that accelerate, right? Because it's going to be the case that in more places, teachers are comfortable coming back into the building because they've been vaccinated and community spread is low enough because of vaccination that uh, that in-person schooling is no longer seen as particularly problematic. There have been some studies um, that suggest just that, that when community spread is pretty low, in-person schooling is not problematic. It doesn't really exacerbate what's happening with COVID in the community. Uh, When community spread is pretty high, sending kids back into in-person schooling does in fact accelerate COVID spread. So so I think as we increasingly are in this in the in the former, you know, situation where communities have pretty low disease prevalence in general, we're going to see us moving more and more in that direction, but we certainly have made progress. I think the the progress on the vaccination front has been huge and as you know, the Biden administration really pushed on states to ensure that teachers were prioritized in their vaccination schemes. And so like here in Indiana, for example, that changed the vaccination tiers a bit. To, to sort of escalate teachers up the, up the tiers. So that has been a huge part of, of making this possible. Um, and, and I think it is, it is probably pretty feasible to have the vast majority of schools in person in fairly short order.
1: So as for President Biden's other more long-term plans, his campaign website says that he aims to close the 23 billion annual funding gap between white and non-white school districts by tripling Title I funding. He claims this funding would serve children of low-income families and ensure teachers are paid competitively. So what is this funding, and do you think this could be an effective way to help close the learning gap? So this is a great question,
2: and, and I should have probably mentioned Title One a bit when we were talking about COVID relief as well, so I'll, I'll bring that up here. So so, Title One is really kind of the primary way in which the federal government is involved in the funding of, of K through 12 schools. So, we talked about sort of the more prominent roles for localities and for states, but you know the the role of the federal government in the provision of, of education or or sort of in schooling in the United States has typically really revolved around equity. Be that equity for students with disabilities or um, equity for students with special needs and or um, English language learners or equity for students from disadvantaged backgrounds. And also sort of on the heels of civil rights legislation, equity for students of different races and ethnicities, right? So, so that has really been kind of a primary role for the federal government because essentially the constitution uh, delegates the authority for education to states. The federal government is kind of kind of the role the federal government plays is ensuring that states are holding up the constitutional rights of students, right? The, the constitutional rights and protections of students, for, for students and their families. So, so that's been the role. So Title I is a funding source that is primarily targeted at ensuring that there aren't these sort of vast, especially spending resource differences across school districts, primarily across school districts that serve predominantly Black versus predominantly white or predominantly uh, black and Hispanic uh, versus predominantly white districts. And many times that sort of aligns also with predominantly higher income serving districts, higher income families, and predominantly lower income families. So that is the that is what Title I funding is. So it flows to essentially sort of, you can think of it as like supplement or cap off the, the resources that are coming from local and state sources. Um, but because as you, you know, because property taxes support a lot of, of the local dollars that flow to education, you can imagine that that creates inequities. Um, and so Title I was intended to sort of equalize or at least attempt to, to smooth across those lower spending and higher spending districts. Um, I sh- the reason I bring up the COVID relief is because COVID relief actually follows the Title I formula such that places that serve, you know, sort of high poverty districts are going to get much more of that money. So the, the COVID relief bill works out to something like $2,500 per student nationwide, but that's going to be a lot more in um, in high poverty districts. So something I saw the stat for like Cleveland school district, where the vast majority of students come from low income families, it's actually going to work out to something like roughly $8,000 per student. So, you know, a big infusion of, of resources into those high-need, high-poverty districts. So that is the kind of the background on Title One. And so by essentially by pledging sort of more resources towards the Title I program, what that means is these federal funds are going to flow through to high-poverty districts. Um, and, and so you can imagine that that could have a number of effects, but it is certainly going to um, provide a lot of resources in those places, which, you know, uh, as as the administration has said, they're hoping will, you know, sort of ensure being able to hire high quality teachers, being able to retain teachers, which is a real challenge for a lot of these schools and districts. Just putting those school districts in a better place to be able to make decisions that support students well and, and target those resources to, to in ways that support students well, like to, towards teachers i think is uh, is potentially very impactful there's a there's a lot of research that shows that increased per student funding especially in high poverty places has had both short and long- run benefits uh, in those places so i think the research also supports that um, that that's a, a wise investment
0: so another long-term goal of the biden administration is to provide high quality universal pre-k for three and four-year-olds I think that's been a call from the Democratic Party, and especially the left end of the Democratic Party, for a little while now. Could you talk maybe a little bit about that? Advantages, disadvantages, uh, and what you see happening with with that issue.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, pre-K has been a fairly bipartisan issue over time. Now, like what that looks like in terms of an actual policy has been the source of a lot of debate. Like, is it universal? Who provides it? And so, like a, a publicly provided universal pre-K, maybe not not as bipartisan, um, whereas, you know, some sort of subsidy or voucher to families to use to pursue um, pre-K from a variety of different providers has has had some support um, among Republicans. But you're right that this has been a, uh, a sort of a, a pillar of the Democratic platform for a number of years. You know, the business community is largely very supportive of, of this idea for a couple reasons. One, in that we have a lot of evidence that suggests that you have a better trained workforce, you know, something like 18 20 years later when you make these kinds of investments in kids, um, but also that you uh, support the child care needs of your current workforce when you provide these kinds of programs. And so, so you kind of have a lot of players and stakeholders who are, are supportive of this kind of, of program. So, I, you know, I, I feel like we might be in the moment where all of those pieces kind of come together and we actually see something move ahead on this, but I, I guess, you know. I don't know. I'm not one to, to in the current political climate, want to put odds on that. But but I do think across the variety of education issues we could talk about, this is one that has a, a lot of support, a pretty broad-based support as well. And the reason for that is because of that evidence base I just talked about. I mean, we have a lot of evidence to support the both short and long-term effects of making smart investments in young kids. It's a developmentally very important time in their trajectories. And it seems to just have a cascading slew of benefits, both when they're in school and then later in life. So um, so for that reason, I think a lot of people are on board with the idea. Now, the question is how you do high quality and universal you know well. So how do you serve a lot of kids and how do you make what you're providing of the type of... of uh, quality that it realizes the kind of benefits we're talking about. So, I do think that's challenging, and sort of the logistics of who provides it in what kinds of settings. You know, who's eligible? Um, ideally, in a universal program, I think you you probably want families from all different kinds of backgrounds being served in the same kinds of centers. I think that ensures a higher quality program. Um, And and so how you sort of set things up to to make that kind of a program work, I think the the sort of policy details are really important. That is probably where we'll see a lot of political fighting about what the the policy ultimately looks like. But I think some kind of broader support for providing early childhood education to three and four-year-olds, I think has a pretty good shot of of, um, moving ahead. And I think uh, the evidence certainly supports that kind of an initiative.
1: So looking more broadly, as someone who has researched Head Start, what existing federal interventions in early childhood education um, have you seen to be effective?
2: Yeah, so Head Start is pretty much the the federal intervention for early childhood education. You know, um, it's the only real sort of single program that has been supported by the federal government over time since, you know, 1965, so long-running program. There are some other ways in which the federal government either regulates or subsidizes the childcare market. But other than that, really most early childhood programming policies emerges from the states. And so it really is um, kind of a local and or state supported and initiated kind kind of thing. But Um, But Head Start, I think, is the evidence base we kind of rely on when we have these conversations because it has been around so long. We do have a lot of data and we have a lot of studies that have employed different methods to look at the effectiveness of Head Start. I think that as we move into thinking more about a universal three to three and four year old program, we are going to hear a lot about the Head Start evidence. We will hear Opponents and opponents, we will hear the Head Start evidence cited. So and that's not uncommon when you have a broad research base that there are going to be some mixed findings and people are going to uh, interpret it in different ways. But I, I mean, my take on the Head Start evidence is that it's pretty, um, it's pretty overwhelming that the early Head Start program in the late, you know, this was in nineteen sixties, late nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, was very effective. And now, what's challenging about that is the context in the late 1960s and 1970s was quite different, right? And so now when we try to think about present day programming, um, that kind of research is probably not as applicable. I think that's a that's fair enough. The other sort of key point I'll make is that what we're talking about is a universal program and Head Start is very targeted. Uh, it's targeted to the most needy kids and families. And so who would be you know, who would be participating in a program, who would be supported by a program, looks really different relative to Head Start. Um, And so for that reason, some of the universal pre-K programs that states have enacted, like Georgia, Oklahoma, um, Florida, those might be a better sort of example or model of what we might expect to happen from a a federal universal program. Because, you know, universal programs and targeted programs look very different, and there are a lot of reasons why we might think their effects could also be quite different.
0: So the final issue we want to cover today is the one that's probably most of interest to uh, our, our college students listening to this, uh, student loan debt forgiveness. So there have been calls from the left pushing President Biden to forgive up to 50000 in student debt per person. Just to start us off, how feasible is this policy? And if you could walk us through some of the economic advantages and disadvantages that this, this policy would bring.
2: So I think that this is um, an interesting one, and and you guys sort of wrestle more with the politics of these kinds of topics than I do. I try to I try to step back from the politics of these things. I mean, I think as we've all seen, this has been seized upon as a as a policy from um, both sides of the political spectrum, and you can see sort of how like in just it has this like appeal of being very simple to articulate student loan debt forgiveness, you know, you clear out debt for anyone and everyone um, with some threshold, say $50,000. So it has the like political beauty or appeal of being very straightforward, simple, easy for people to understand. And so it has, for I think that reason, generated a lot of support and buzz, right? I think it also for that reason, or, or for the reason that there are lots of people, as you mentioned, you know, college students are very interested there are lots of people who would be directly affected by it. And so there's there's a lot of, of interest in, in what's going to happen. I, I think the one thing I would say here is that one, one thing I see in the debate about this kind of a policy that is kind of frustrating from an economist's viewpoint is that, you know, um, there's kind of an absence of thinking about budget constraints. And because debt is kind of a, a trickier concept to think about when you think about budget constraints, so you're like, you're, uh, what, what what the federal government would do here is basically, forgive debt. And so people don't think of that as coming out of the sort of bottom line and, uh, from a budget perspective in the same way that they think about like direct spending on a program. But it's the same thing. So the money does have to come from somewhere, right? To If, if we're no longer going to be bringing in the revenue that is produced from people paying down their debt, then we, we won't have those funds on one side of the balance sheet, right? So it is the case that you have to think about sort of where the money's coming from. And so from my perspective, is this the best targeted policy choice for the problems we are trying to alleviate? So, I mean, when I think about sort of what we would be trying to do through student loan debt forgiveness, one has been that it's been characterized as kind of COVID relief in the short term. And um, I guess I'm not convinced that it's well targeted to do that. And that would be going to the families who most need uh, relief right now. Um, and from that perspective, I don't think it's the best option. Now, the other is that we're, we're really concerned in, a, in sort of the education space about these kind of predatory higher education providers that have come on the scene, right? And so you have a lot of people going to these institutions, some of them online, some of them, you know, they tend to be these private providers and drawing down, you know, taking on some debt to do so and then not finishing or even finishing. But those, those kinds of programs don't necessarily generate a lot of return in the labor market. And it makes it hard for them to then pay that debt back. If that's the challenge we're trying to alleviate, then I think we should target that issue specifically, and that's sort of what to do about these higher education providers. And so, so there's that. Then I think there's also the broader issue of just not completing. So people start, for example, a lot of people's, uh, a lot of community colleges have very low completion rates. And so, if the concern is that people are entering community college, taking on debt, and then they're not completing, again, I think there are better targeted strategies to to addressing that problem. And better than one time student loan debt forgiveness, those kinds of interventions would alleviate the problem for future generations, right? I think it's hard to think about sort of what happens after we do one time debt forgiveness. Sort of what does that mean for the decisions people make thereafter? There's gonna be a lot of um, sort of, we think people respond to incentives, right? So people will observe that, and then how will that change the decisions they make thereafter? I would like to see us actually sort of getting at the root causes of some of these problems, which are the non-completion and the these providers that I think we would do well to have some more regulation, more and better information for people when they're making decisions about taking on debt to pursue certain types of degrees. So I think, you know, I would like to see us really tackling those problems. Now, to my earlier point, it's really hard to get people to focus on the policy nuance of the kinds of of policies I'm talking about when student loan debt forgiveness has a real sort of broad appeal or or easy, um, straightforward message. The other final thing I'll say, and I think this kind of relates to thinking about other levels of of student loan debt forgiveness. So like, say we were saying something more like $10,000. For one thing, uh, from a budget perspective, you know, the trade-offs there are less pronounced, right, than than um, a big, you know, sort of like a $50,000 student loan debt one-time relief policy. The other thing is that your real, sort of your uh, your folks with the most debt tend to be those with like grad school loans, MBAs, that kind of thing. And from my perspective, they're not the people I'm most concerned about. And so actually in relieving small amounts of debt, you would get a lot of the folks who um, started but did not complete and complete college. And that I think is actually the group we're most worried about because they're not going to have the opportunity to realize the benefits from having a college degree to then pay down that debt, right? And so I think from from the perspective of kind of like trying to get the the relief if you're going to pursue this kind of policy trying to get the relief to the folks who you're most worried about it's the people who didn't complete and i think a smaller policy captures a lot of them and doesn't have the fact that you would also be bringing in a lot of like high earners super high earners with the a, with a, a bigger amount of, of debt relief. So so all that is to say, that's kind of like a many fold answer to your fairly straightforward question. But all that is to say that I totally understand the political appeal of the of the topic. And I don't think it's necessarily well targeted to some of the problems that we think it should be. I do think a smaller student loan debt relief program could potentially hit a lot of people in ways that would really make them better off.
1: Thank you for that insight. Yeah, it seems like There's a lot more to dive into than just like the catchy, the catchphrase of student debt forgiveness. So we just want to see if you have any closing thoughts or um, things you'd like to promote that we could share with our ND Votes listeners before we go.
2: Um, I don't think so. I think people who are interested in economics of education can take my class, as as you two both did. Um, I'll be offering it again in the fall of 20, what are we in, 2021. So I'd be happy to see anyone there who is interested in these kinds of topics.
0: I'm totally happy to second that too. It was a great class, Professor Gibb, Heavily recommended. Yeah,
1: definitely you. agreed. ND Votes would like to thank the Center for Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, the Constitutional Studies Minor, and ND Student Media for their support in the production of this podcast. We'd also like to thank our wonderful guest, Professor Chloe Gibbs, for being here today. As always, ND Votes reminds you to register to vote and request your absentee ballot using the link on our website. Also, check out other voter education resources now up on our website. Your vote matters, get political.